and welcome to the Painless Podcast. It's Chris Hartwig from Painless Networking here. Check us out at painless.network for more on taking the pain out of networking. What's the Painless Podcast? Well, Painless Podcasts are simply about getting connected with good human beings in sports and event marketing. Go beyond sound bites with smart, interesting, generous people who will share with us how and why they've reached the success they've had and how networking and mentoring have shaped their careers. One sec before we hear about today's guest, Bob Fallon, because we need to thank this week's sponsor for making the podcast possible. If you have not listened to episode four with Chris Reuter, the CEO of Spikeball, then shame on you. Put that in, up next in your pod feed. Great stuff from Chris about how Spikeball came about and how uh, Spikeball has grown and uh, been so successful. To heads up, Spikeball fans, Spikeball Nationals are coming to Chicago on October 14th. Special offer to Painless members and pod listeners. Save 50% on registration with the code PAINLESS. Full link is in the description, or you can get there via www.usaspikeball.com. Go sign up now. And a, a big announcement. Starting tomorrow, August 10th, you'll get a second awesome, amazing podcast. This one from all-time Illini basketball great Dion Thomas and veteran reporter and host Eric Schmidt called The Fadeaway. Stay tuned for more, but you will not be disappointed with their first guest. You may have heard of this guy. Hoops Hall of Famer Lou Henson shares some great stories you've never heard before. The Fadeaway on the Painless Podcast Network starting August 10th. All righty, Bob Fallon. Bob's returned home to Chicago to run and elevate the only Tier 1 Junior Hockey League in the United States, the United States Hockey League. Worked for sports properties, agencies, his own agency, media sales, publishing, selling for brands. In addition to hockey, he's been in and around tennis, golf, basketball, and baseball. Pretty much all started when he didn't know he was talking to Billie Jean King. Great story. Connect with Bob on LinkedIn. He's active on Twitter at USHL Commish. And the league is at USHL. And especially if you're all anywhere all over the Midwest listening, check out USHL.com for info on the 17 different teams. And uh, check out a game with Hockey Stars of Tomorrow for basically peanuts. All right, let's get going. Recorded August 2nd at the USHL's offices in Chicago's West Loop. Let's get connected with Bob Fallon. Welcome to the Painless Podcast, USHL Commissioner Bob Fallon. Welcome, Bob. Chris, thanks for being here. Appreciate it. No problem. Looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, all kinds of good stuff we can talk about. But before we, I like to go back and look at a little bit of your, your background, your history, but tell us a little bit about what you, you're doing these days as what your role is entailing as commissioner of the USHL. Well, the, uh, the exact title is president and commissioner, so I'm the, uh, essentially the chief executive officer of the league. We have a pretty small staff here, but we administrate a league of uh, 17 member clubs. It's not a franchise league. It's memberships in a league. So um, it's a, a junior A league, which is a developmental hockey league, Chris, for primarily NCAA. 96% of our student athletes go on to Division One college opportunities at institutions like uh, you know Notre Dame, Michigan, Yale, Princeton, you know North Dakota, Minnesota. So if you look up and down those rosters, like the Big Ten Hockey Conference, about 80% of the kids on those rosters come from our 
our league. How big of an area are the 17 member clubs? How far does that stretch out across? It's uh, primarily upper Midwest. We go as far west as, uh, you know, Kearney, Nebraska, which is our Tri-City team, and as far east as Youngstown, which is essentially Pittsburgh. Our farthest north is Fargo, and our furthest south right now is uh, really Bloomington, though we do have uh, applications in from both uh, the St. Louis market and uh, Kansas City markets for expansion. Cool. Is that part of the the plan looking ahead? Are you trying to get to you know, 20 teams, two dozen teams, or is it more just methodical wherever it makes it, it's sense? It's really, it, it's strategic. You know, what we're trying to do, what's, you know, uh, really held back, I think, junior hockey expansion at different levels is people, you know, maybe call upon the first guy with a checkbook. And what we're trying to do is to be something that's a lot more sustainable around uh, making sure you have enough tier one capable athletes. We're the only tier one league in the United States, so you have to really be able to play at a high level. Uh, you have to have a sustainable market, a sustainable arena, and you really have to have people that aren't hobbyists. This is a real professional sports business, and uh, our average, uh, you know, uh, expense streams are about 1.6 million for each team. So you have to have some guys with some deep pockets and some business acumen to run them. So we're looking at, uh, you know, we have to to mind our business model. We can't just go anywhere. I get calls from people on. You know, Scottsdale and L.A. and Boston and Buffalo. And it's like, guys, I, you know, 92% of my games are on the weekends because we have young men that are still in high school. So uh, unlike, uh, you know, the, the, the programs in Canada where they play games in the mid, midweek, we only pay, play 8% of our games. So wow. the geographic footprint's really important. Now, is there, an age, is there an age limit to? Yeah, so junior hockey in the United States is the ages of 16 to 20. You age out at 20 from junior hockey. So this is really still classified as uh, as youth hockey, though every time these guys walk by me, I don't think of them as youth. They're very large young men. Uh, but uh, the wheelhouse for our league is really that 18 to 19 group. Uh, even though we allow 16s in our 16-year-olds uh, in our league, I think we only had nine that were capable of playing at this level. Um, one of them is Andrei Svechnikov, who's uh, regarded as the potential first overall pick in next year's draft for the NHL, so he's clearly capable at 6'1 and two. 209 pounds or 211 pounds, something like that, as a 16-year-old, by the way. Um, But it's really, you know, that, you know, the wheelhouse of that 18 and 19-year-old, and it's unusual um, uh, in sport, but it's typical for hockey where you don't go right to college from high school. You really play a a year of junior or two years of junior. So it's typical in the NCAA to see 19 and 20-year-old freshmen Mm -hmm. um, because it, it really... It's kind of the, uh, the the boy to man story for junior hockey. You leave uh, home, whether it's in Minnesota or you know California or Texas, whatever. You go to the USHL and you really become a man. It's about you know getting away from your parents, getting professional coaching, and you know treating your body right and trying to learn how to play the game. And the the kids that are the 16 to not kids really. Yeah. Like we talked about the 16, 20 year old young men that are coming and playing. They're not paid because they're no because they're trying to keep their amateur status to go off and get scholarships. That's correct. And those kinds of things, right? Yeah, so, we're, we're NCAA compliant. Uh, the the young men are not compensated. Uh, it is a free league, so all of their travel, housing, food, equipment. Um, you know, pairs of skates are eight hundred bucks. They don't pay. The sticks are two hundred bucks. They don't pay. A lot of kids go through twelve to fifteen of them a, yeah. a season. So, it, you're you're treated like a pro, except you're not paid. But you know, the the, the payback is that again, ninety six percent of our kids are getting D one scholars. Right. Well, and that's where going to you're talking about the the costs per team. That's mm-hmm. where the costs beyond uh, uh, an arena. It's all those 
player related costs. Player and travel and equipment are really the yeah. three primary cost centers for our teams. And is this like in Canada, the juniors, uh, they're often they're staying with basically host families and that yeah. kind of a thing? So right? it's another thing unique to junior hockey is the notion of billet families. Uh, you know, when my son played in the league, he lived with a, a family. Um, you know, a father, a mother, you know, two sisters and a brother <laughs> uh, down in uh, Cedar Rapids, Iowa. But, uh, you know, they take care of you like they're your own. I mean, you get your own, you have to have your own sleeping quarters. You know, you can't be bunked with somebody else. You can't share a room with anybody else. And they do your laundry. They feed you. I mean, just, it's literally your surrogate parents. Yeah. And it uh, it's, it's really, I think, a great step in the developmental process because it really forces these young men to kind of grow up in a different way because for the first time ever, they're kind of detached from well, and is there? There's really nothing else like that out there. Looking at not sports, in sports, in, no. in, at least in the it's, United it's States, it's very right? unique to junior hockey. Yeah, and I think it's something actually. If other sports could pull it off, like college football or college basketball, they do it in a heartbeat because yeah. you're getting game ready people. Like, you know, it's funny. I had a meeting with. Um, uh, some folks over at the the Big Ten office, and then I had set out a, a, a query to them saying, guys, you know, maybe we should get together and talk about how there's maybe some, you know, concepts of mutual benefit, and maybe we should work closer together. And uh, Brad Traviola, a really great guy, he's an executive director of, you know, the Big Ten hockey and associate uh, commissioner of the Big Ten. I said, well, you know, that's fine. I'm all up for a free lunch, but you have to explain to me what, you know, I don't really understand how we're connected. And I said, well, I'll, I'll you know, <laughs> I'll, I'll show you when we get there. So I showed him the, the rosters of all the Big Ten teams. I was like, you're, you know, roughly 80% of our player or your right. rosters are all made up of USHL guys. Not only that, and I showed him a copy of the Big Ten press release of the all Big Ten team, the all Big Ten second team, the all Big Ten third team. And out of the 18 athletes, 17 of them came from the USHL. Wow. And he's like, oh, I guess I know how we're connected now. So it just, it, it's funny. One of the reasons, uh, you know, the challenges behind the job and taking it in the first place, Chris, was, you know, junior hockey is a well-known entity in Canada. It's really not well-known here. Right. You, you have to explain it to people. They're like, okay, how old are these guys again? And, what, you know, how much are they paid? And mm-hmm. where do they come from? Where do they go? And it's, again, it's unique to hockey in the sense that you have these young guys that before they play NCAA, they play junior hockey. And there's basically three levels of junior hockey. There's Tier 1, we're the only Tier 1 league. There's the North American League, which is Tier 2. And then there's a, a host of Tier 3 teams where most of those guys are not playing uh, D1. They're going on to either D3 or club hockey. And is that uh, one more kind of in, in the in the weeds on it? But the with Tier 1, then, is it uh, tryout-based, rec- you know, recommendations from yeah, yeah. scouts? How, how, do, how yeah. do the guys get into the, playing? <laughs> well, uh, unequivocally, you can't pay your way onto a team in this league. Yeah. This is a, a, a skill-based, speed-based, uh, tryout-based thing. Uh, we have guys that are, you know, Mr. Hockey candidates in, in Minnesota that come down and get cut out of this league. So, wow. it's, so the owner's kid... You might find that in other levels of junior hockey. Yeah. You're not going to find it here. And if you do find it here, they're going to stick out like a sore thumb. Right. Because that's one of the things that, you know, I, I've, uh, the owner will go nameless, but, you know, we have a, you know, a couple of guys in our league that are billionaires, and I mean, some of them with kids. And I said, you know, if before you sign the papers on this team, I want to caution you about getting into this business if you're looking for a place to park your, your son, because <laughs> this is the worst place you want to stick a kid that's not ready because it's uh, there's big strong fast aggressive young men in this and you could really get hurt if you're not ready so let's 
we'll come back some more about what, yep. what other things you're doing with the league. But, I, you know, how did you get to this point? Like going back to growing up, yet another Glen Ellen native uh, on the podcast now, the the fourth one, if you count, if you count I'll me. I'll admit that as long as the statute of limitations is up from the Glen Ellen Police Department. Yeah, so. Right. <laughs> but coming from the quaint upbringing in yeah. Glen Ellen and stuff, did you get hooked on hockey as a kid there? Like playing on Lake Ellen kind of a thing? Or yeah, what, how, yeah. how did that happen? Well, I was always a big Blackhawk fan. I mean, uh, that that was my team. I mean, you know, the only way you could really hear about them was, you know, on the radio with WIND and Lloyd Pettit. And, and I just fell in love with the Blackhawks and the sport itself. But, uh you know, growing up in Glen Ellen, I was, you know, primarily involved in, you know, youth football with the Golden Eagles, which mm-hmm. were a big thing out there. And uh, I was a amateur wrestler, you know, the lowest weight classification in high school. <laughs> and uh, I really didn't get into playing the game until I was a senior in high school. And I was like, really? what have I been doing all my, you know, uh, I just really never got into organized. I played it on the okay. ponds and at yeah. Lake Ellen, but never played on any organized teams. And after I got into it, I was like, oh my God, I've been wasting my time in wrestling and football. But anyway, it is what it is. I actually uh, have a real fondness for the game. Uh, both of my kids played. And, and you have awesome. one son and one daughter? Yep. They both played college. My son played at Yale University after playing in the USHL. And my uh, daughter played at uh, St. Thomas University up in Minnesota and still plays senior women's hockey, just wow. like the guys. Now, what, what does your, you know, is your wife a hockey wife, hockey mom? Or uh, does she play some too? She was an athlete. She wasn't a hockey player. But when we were in Minnesota, she got involved in it and was actually the general manager of Team Minnesota, the, um, the high school uh, women's all-star team that would play in the national events. Oh, so and she's, yeah, so she's, she's, right got, in there in she's got four national championship uh, rings to her credit. So what team how many do you have? So I have none. Yeah, okay. I just, that's what I thought. <laughs> Um, so, did you go? You went to college at Northern Illinois, yep. and, and did hockey uh, again or sports? Play yeah, a little there, little or? club hockey at Northern, but uh, you know practices were all the way in Rockford, starting at ten thirty at night, and I got old after a while, yeah. so bagged that. But I, you know, early on and when I was in college, I was really interested in the the marketing promotion side of things. So, I really thought that you know. The future for me was going to be an event promotion and sports marketing of some level. And there, I remember that I had some uh, roommates that were interviewing on campus with like Duracell batteries and <laughs> Miller Brewing and you know every, a whole bunch of different companies. And they were wondering why I wasn't uh, signing up for any of these interview opportunities. I said, I honestly cannot picture myself doing that for a living. I go, what are you going to do? I said, I'll figure it out when I get there. So I, after I graduated, I just started kind of dialing for dollars, not really looking for work necessarily, but really looking for more information about the field. And uh, I think that's what got me my first couple of interviews is I would call a guy. There was a guy that was um, involved with marketing for the Bears, Kenny Valdeseri, oh, sure. Kenny, and I just got him on the phone. I said, listen, I'm not looking for a job. I'm looking for 30 minutes of your time to share knowledge about what the job is. What is the industry? What do you do? Right. And I just said, listen, it's just I'll just drive up to Lake Forest, and we wound up talking for like 90 minutes. I did the same thing with Steve Shanwald, who used to be a senior marketing guy with the, the Bulls. With the I think Bulls, he still right. might be. I'm not sure. And uh, I wound up doing it with uh, the guys at the Blackhawks and the Cubs and everything else and got to know these guys and stayed friends and got involved with some sports charity stuff. But one of my cold calls was to a, um, a tennis promotions agency here in Chicago that was doing, at the time, the professional tennis circuit. It was called the Virginia Slims right. Tour. Was that at the Pavilion? Yeah. No. Yep, yep. So uh, I wound up calling the office, and I just said, you know, gave him the same spiel. I'm not really looking for work as much as I'm just, really, you know, looking for 
you know, some uh, knowledge about the business and the industry and really what it is you do and how do you generate revenue and, you know, how do you make a business of, you know, in this case, tennis. And I'm on talking to this woman for like 45 minutes and she was really engaging on the phone. She said, listen, you know what? I'd really love to meet you. Why don't you come by the office? And I was like, okay, great. So we scheduled for for later that week. And she goes, just, you know, come to this address. And, uh, you know, when you get to the front desk, just tell me you're here to see Billy. So I was like, great. So <laughs> I show up and out of this uh, conference room, this woman comes out. I was like, God, that really looks like Billie Jean King. <laughs> and it was Billie Jean King who uh-huh. owned the Virginia Slims of Chicago <laughs> and L.A. and New York. And she hired me that day. And that was my first job. It was a complete cold call. And, and that's uh, who you were. But that's who you were talking to that's on who the I was phone. Talking to to on the phone. I, and I had no idea. I was talking to a sports hall of famer, president of the Women's Sports Foundation. I mean, a really, I'll tell you what, not only a great athlete, a really sharp business professional. Yeah. And is still, you know, in touch with her today. She's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Everybody I know that's interacted with her has always spoken very highly of her as a human yep. and her business talent and of course her athletic talent. So that's that's a great start. So you did that with the uh, Virginia Slims for um, for yep. a couple of years, yeah. right? A couple of years. And it's one of those things where, you know, the beauty of it is when you're just starting out you want to find a job where you can wear a number of hats. Mm-hmm. You don't want to be you know, thrown into a cubicle and you do the same thing. So when I started, my first job was group sales. And then I got into premium seat sales. And then I got into suite sales. And then I got into sponsorship sales. And then she noticed that I had an acumen for writing. So I did PR. And then I did media. So I, you know, by my second year, I was helping negotiate our deal with WGN and Arnie. I can't remember his last Arnie name. Harris? Arnie Harris. Arnie yeah. Harris. So like, I, I was like, God, this is the guy that produces the Cup Games. Yeah. And I'm meeting with him. I'm 22 years old. Right. So, uh, you know, I, she threw me at a lot of stuff. And, you know, the more I could handle, she was like, hey, I'll throw everything I can at you. If you can handle it, you can do it. So That's awesome. Uh, and that's really the kind of job, I think, when you're first starting out, you want to just take on as much as you can. And get the experience. And then, you know, she was aligned with so many different sponsors and companies. She was represented by IMG, so I got exposed to IMG. We did business with Octagon, so I got exposed to the guys at Octagon. And uh, there was an old company called Advantage International that was really big into tennis and, you know, all the media companies and things like that. ESPN, she got an ESPN contract. Uh, She was the founder of the Team Tennis League. So I became the director of marketing for Team Tennis. And, you know, it sounds really big. I was paid peanuts. It was, you know, living hand to mouth, but I had a big title. It was it was a lot of fun, though. And that's, I mean, part of it, too, is that uh, at that point, you know, there was no sports marketing, sports management kind of degrees in school. No. You had to get it all no. as the real type of experience. Now, I think um, people in school now, the kids in school now, have that chance to learn some of that from both class and then related to classroom experience of getting out and working with teams or events or whatever, so they can they're they're you know maybe a couple years ahead in the cycle. But at that point, you just kind of had to go do it. So is that how you ended up next at? IMG was just knowing yeah. those guys and yeah so I got to know those guys and they you know we wound up having lunch and they wanted to know if I wanted to work on a project not as an employee yet but as you know they, I think they were just kind of testing me a little bit to see what my acumen was and uh, they wound up bringing me on board as a contractor for a series of ironically uh, uh, hockey events mm-hmm. um, you know that the, they did with some things and then uh they brought me on for a thoroughbred racing project with uh, Arlington Park and Dick Duchessois. We uh, created the 1986 International Festival of Racing after Arlington Park burned to the ground, so we did the whole thing under tent. And 
actually, that was that long ago already. Eighty six, man. Holy yeah. cow! Tell me about it. So, <laughs> but it was. I mean, it was one of those things where I mean, we did everything for. I mean, we brought in the guest speakers, we brought in the sponsors, we did uh, contracts with the. I mean, IMG just literally took the thing over, right. and so uh, I had this crazy, really gifted uh, uh, supervisor by the name of Dave McGugan, who I consider one of my mentors. Who we started there. Our workday started at Arlington at five a.m. Oh Lord! And he was just like, "Look, you can either do it, or I'll find somebody else." And it just, <laughs> and that was the thing that people breaking into the business had to understand that you had crazy hours and basically low pay. But if you could put up with it and you could succeed, you could start to make some money. So. And how did you, being thrown all these different things? I mean, obviously a very, very smart young man, but. But I mean, how did you figure out your, your way through some of those things? If you ran into stuff you didn't know, um, were you a question asker? Were yeah. you, uh, you know, figured out to keep screwing it up until you get it right? How did you figure that stuff out? I think it's a combination of all that stuff, Chris. I mean, when you're young and starting off in any business, you really have to make the most of your curiosity and make the most of your communication skills. And I think it's really good to find out who the rock stars are in whatever category you're in and try to figure out why they're successful and how they're successful and and just try to see if you can't sponge off of them in terms of their knowledge and their experience. I mean, at every step along the way, what I consider some of my real developmental steps as a professional, like guys at IMG, like this fellow Dave McGugan, who I'm still friends with today, he's a senior vice president of a, a stem cell research and marketing company out oh of San gosh. Diego now, but um, just a brilliant guy who literally, if, if, if he had questions, he was great about answering them and he wasn't, you know, shy about sharing information and knowledge and, and then uh, wound up working at Kemper Sports uh, under uh, the leadership of uh, Susan Missner, who is, I consider one of the brilliant sports marketing minds here in Chicago, great gal. And, um, she was a real ass kicker too, and I laugh about this. That uh, you know, I consider myself you know a, a real strong writer. I had actually a degree in journalism from Northern, and I really considered that one of my strengths was writing. And um, uh, when I first went there, you know, we had some big time clients like Monsanto and NutraSuite and some uh, Epson computers. And she's like, "Okay, here's the deal: before you send anything to these senior level clients, I have to see it." I'm like, "Yeah, no problem." Like, hey, she's going to be really impressed with my yeah. writing skills, right? So one day I, uh, I have this proposal I'm writing to uh, uh, one of our clients who really had a reputation for being a bit of a ball buster on account executives. And um, so I, 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 you know, had finished the, the document after Susan had left for the day, and I dropped it on her desk and figured out, all right, I'll just get to sign off tomorrow and we'll send the thing. So waiting on my desk when I got in the next morning was my... Uh, my draft covered in red ink and uh, I went in and she was on the phone and I walked right up to her she was still on the phone and I checked her wrist and I lifted up her wrist and she goes and she puts the phone on hold and she goes what are you doing I go I just want to see if you cut yourself I go there's all this there's red stuff on my paper I don't know if you got a paper cut or whether she's like Bob I'll I'll talk to you after this phone call she basically the point was she goes I'll never forget this as long as I live she's like you know what, you are a really good writer, but there are certain times where you just need to get to the effing point. And this, I'm yeah. going to teach you how to use your skills mm-hmm. to get to the point, communicate more clearly, more efficiently. And that, I mean, again, it was one of those things where some people might take that kind of criticism and pout. 
I took the criticism like a kick up the ladder. I mean, she's like, yeah. she's this brilliant University of Chicago grad, and she's like, this is how you write more effectively. And I think that uh, as I sit here today as a president of an organization, one of the weaknesses I see in the crop of young professionals, young aspiring professionals, is people don't know how to write anymore yeah. because everything in social media and everything is so cryptic. Mm-hmm. And it's like nobody knows how to articulate a point anymore. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, that's something that I always encourage when I'm out talking to classes um, around town at the different universities that just just get writing, like full writing, full sentence yep. writing, full paragraph, full yeah. document writing, because you're going to need it. It helps you break out your thoughts and and do them cohesively versus, you know, hey, look, I love Twitter too, but you, know, you can only do so much in 140 characters. And exactly. Abbreviations and all those kinds of things. And it's interesting too that like, you know, you'd been at it for five, six years or so while you were there. And that's kind of the first time you got that mm-hmm. kick in the ass. And maybe it was, maybe that was a good time then because you were, you were uh, more willing to take it and had a little more confidence that it didn't crush you, I guess. Well, but. not only that. I think that it comes with the fact that if you have a lot of respect for somebody who's your supervisor, mm-hmm. you trust their judgment, you trust their experience. And that's another thing that I think that for the young people coming into the business, you have to find you know, mentors and uh, people you trust to give you advice because that's how you learn and that's how you get better. Right. Totally. So you did, you know, there's another couple of few years yep. at Kemper, and then you went to Dorna, the guys that would sell this, the rotational signage at all yeah. the big games so, and TV. Well, that was an interesting story, too, because, you know, it, it's funny when you, you know, occasionally look at your resume or whatever, but, you know, you're kind of like, how did I get there? Right. <laughs> right. And I actually, uh, it was a kind of a strange story. I was actually really enjoying my, uh, my time at Kemper. We had some great business going. I was getting regular promotions. And, you know, as I said, Susan was a great supervisor. I had great co-workers. But I actually uh, wound up getting pretty seriously ill to the point where I didn't think I might live oh, for more gosh. than a couple of years. And one of my dreams was to own my own business. So a completely irrational thought <laughs> as a newlywed. <laughs> and I, if, if I'm not mistaken, I got to check. I, I'm almost certain my wife was pregnant with her first. I quit. Oh. I, I, I went into Susan and I told her, hey, I, I got to get some stuff done at the Mayo and I'm not sure what's going on here, but I think uh, I got like a high mortality rate here and I want to actually say I opened up my own shingle. And she's like, so you're leaving and you're not going to have insurance. I said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have the medical stuff done until I actually, uh, you know, quit. So I just wanted to give her a heads up, but actually I got it all done. I went into business and opened up my own agency in my first business. Um, client was Dorna out of Barcelona, which was a connect through IMG. Uh-huh. And it was, it was really funny because actually Dorna, which introduced rotational signage to the, the U.S. sports landscape, had actually approached us at IMG, and IMG just, it wasn't something that really fit our profile at the time. Hmm. So I actually tried to bring it to Kemper, and they were just like, it's just not really the thrust of our business. So I kind of kept that in the back of my mind. And when I wanted to do my own agency, I reached out to the guys in Barcelona. I'm like, how about me? And well, that's funny too, because <laughs> that another few years later in the early 2000s, when I did work with Kemper, Maui Invitational and such, they brought yeah. Dorna in yeah. to sell this. <laughs> no, it's amazing. And it was an amazing, amazing, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, you want to get scar tissue, um, in the, in the professional world is go out on your own with an idea that's completely unproven 
and double or triple the price of the current product in the marketplace. <laughs> so we went out, and the Bulls were selling, you know, I think uh, static signage at Chicago Stadium, old Chicago Stadium. So it was Steve Shanwell and his crew, uh-huh. David Brenner, great guys. Oh, yeah. And uh, they uh, were selling, I think, for like $50,000 per spot. And we came in, and our introductory price for Adorno was $250,000 per client. And we said, guys, the the audience in Chicago Stadium is meaningless. We're selling this as airtime for the games on WGN and WR. And so Shanwald and Brenner immediately got it, but the advertisers, not so much. So I got thrown out of (laughs) many an agency on Michigan Avenue. It was great, though. It was awesome. Uh, So then is that... Is your company? I, I've never asked you this. We we met when you were at TPG. Mm-hmm. Uh, you were publishing golf publications yep. and and some other publications, right? And I uh, was at LaSalle initially. Yeah, that's right. Uh, at the bank, and we we talked about doing some stuff. But was TPG? Did you join that? I can't remember. Did you? Is that somebody else's business, or was no, that you building up? So yours? that that was somebody else's business that. I wound up purchasing with some friends of mine. So the Dorna thing, or actually my agency, which I then got swallowed up by Dorna when they opened up Dorna USA. They gave me an offer to basically run a a large territory. So I had the Bulls and the Pistons and the Timberwolves and the Pacers, and then we introduced it into Major League Baseball. And I was doing really, really well. I made more money than I'd ever had in my entire life. And then the owner of uh, Dorna was a bank out of uh, Barcelona called Benesto that got sideways uh, with the Kuwaiti oil crisis. Oh, I remember back in the early 90s. And literally overnight lost billions of dollars and had to divest themselves of their U.S. assets. So literally we're flying high, making great money, having a great time, and the next day we're out of business. and just basically sold, you know, for pennies on the dollar to some guys in New York and they offered me a job and I was like, you know what, maybe this is a signal. Uh, and I was actually having some issues again health-wise and it was um, really starting to wear on me from a health insurance standpoint. Actually, Dorna uh, got dropped by their health insurance provider because I was an employee. That's how bad it was. Oh, so yeah. so I wound up actually going up to Minnesota. My brother was uh, um, doing his residency at Mayo Clinic. He says, listen, I, you know, they've got these insurance policies in Minnesota that I think you, know, you could afford. Because I think at the time here in Chicago, I was paying $1,400 a month for myself. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was a leper. So uh, I wound up going up to Minnesota, reducing my insurance by about 90% and deciding that I wanted to get back in things on my own. So I wound up, uh, you know, getting to know some people and um, went into business with a uh, former Olympic hockey player by the name of David Jensen, who was my Mm -hmm. partner for almost 14 years. And we bought this uh, publishing company and kind of spun it into a sports publishing and marketing services agency, primarily in the amateur sports space. So our biggest clients were USA Hockey, did some stuff for the National Hockey League and um, double IHF, but also a lot of amateur golf organizations. So Chicago Golf, Minnesota Golf, a bunch of amateur golf uh, USGA affiliates. So again, it was very successful. We grew the thing, you know, five times the revenue in, you know, five years and um, really did well and, you know, got the uh, attention of some uh, M&A guys that wind up coming in from New York and making us an offer that, you know, would help secure our future. So we wound up selling the company, um, to an, uh, an outfit uh, with a couple individuals out of New York, and it transformed into Touchpoint Media, which right. is still doing really, really well in Minneapolis today. And David's still a senior executive officer with Touchpoint. We talk every week. We actually just booked a trip together to go fly fishing in Wyoming. So Nice. And 
the publishing piece, was that a, were you looking out at different things and saying, hey, this is a good time to be in this business? Or is there more of a fluky story there? Well, yeah, or? I mean, I, I was trying to read the tea leaves. And, you know, this is, I hate to admit this to people that work for me because I'm significantly <laughs> older than most of the people here at the USHL. But, and this is back in the days when, you know, cell phones were new and, you know, email was new and there wasn't really the internet. And it was just crazy. I mean, I remember pitching the USA Hockey on the notion of actually a website for USA Hockey. Yeah. And electronic registration for their players. I was told at the time would never ever happen. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's how old I am. But anyway, the uh, I was like, I don't know where this is all going. But if we don't have the bandwidth from a capital standpoint to really change our spots a little bit here and get a little bit more digital, it's going to be rough sledding here. And uh, I really saw, you know, the the whole amateur publishing thing on paper really going south, uh, and they're not the you know, the earliest converts to digital media or new ideas. So I was like, maybe now's the time to do this and um, try to, you know, again, it was a turning point where it's like, maybe now it's time to figure out something different. So one of the things that intrigued me was um, the whole retail marketing component and how people were really doing these um, uh, kind of like store takeovers with, you know, tailor-made golf and things like that, where it's just stunning product introductions mm -hmm. and things like that. And it was kind of the rage back then in uh, the mid-90s. And I wound up, uh, you know, with a, a client and a, you know, a customer wound up, you know, had been talking to me for like two years going, hey, whenever you get sick of this publishing thing, I'll hire you in a minute and give you a chunk of the equity and blah, blah, blah. So... Just one of those things where I picked up the phone and said, listen, I've got an earn out after we sold the company, so I have to work there for another, you know, 18 months. But if you're still interested, we should talk. And yeah. we wound up talking and had, had a ball doing it and wound up actually, it was, you know, again, every all this connectivity of our business sometimes, right. it's weird how it all works. But I wound up getting a lot of uh, the major hockey companies as clients and handling all the product launches for, you know, Bauer and Easton and CCM and, um, you know, worked, you know, obviously out of sports as well with banking companies. And we just did some really, really cool cutting edge stuff, uh, sustainable graphics with, re, you know, renewable stuff. And uh, it was just really fun and did that for a couple of years. And while I was still there and having success, I was contacted by, you know, one of the hockey companies, Reebok CCM, which was a subsidiary of Adidas, wanted to know if I had any interest in, you know, coming on board to handle their um, you know, sales and marketing and retail marketing here in the U.S. And it was like, wait a sec. So mm -hmm. I can maintain the, you know, the the vibe of the retail launches and stuff and I can get back in hockey. Sounds like a good idea. So, um, you know, they were based uh, and still are based today. They just uh, got sold to a venture capital company. I think last week they announced it, but uh, based out of Montreal. So I was, you know, working out of an office in uh, Minnesota, but, you know, reported to guys in, yeah. uh, in Montreal and had a lot of success there and uh, a lot of fun. It was, you know, really neat to be attached to not only the sport, but, you know, part of my responsibilities was in managing our league assets like the American Hockey League and college hockey uh, and okay. the USHL. Uh -huh. So, um, it, 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 you know, things happen for a reason, right? And I was in a, um, a, a meeting where I had, you know, shared with the guys at the USHL. I said, listen, guys, I only have a finite amount of money. Um, and it's either we come to an agreement on this stuff or I'm just going to go spend it someplace else. And I, I, I was not the nicest guy in this meeting, right? And I was with the, the, several of the senior board members of the United States Hockey League. And 
I thought, you know, there's a potential this is going to go sideways. And uh, after the meeting, they said, listen, um, why don't you, you know, come out for a few beers with us? We'll go watch the Minnesota Wild and they're playing the Rangers or something. So I called up my wife. I said, listen, I'm just going to head down to the game with these guys. And, you know, it was, you know, it was good to relax. We got the deal done and uh, signed an extension with the United States Hockey League as their primary, you know, sponsor and equipment partner. And the chairman of the league came up to me and he goes, hey, listen, um, you know, I don't know if you knew this or not, but, you know, uh, we're you know we're in the search for a, a new commissioner. I said, "Geez, I said, guys, I could help you. I got I got a Rolodex full of guys that'd be perfect yeah, for your right. job." And the guy stared at me and he goes, "Hey, McFly, how about you?" <laughs> I'll never forget that. He just looked at me and goes, "Hey, McFly, how about you?" And I was like, I don't, "I'm not looking for a job." And he goes, "I don't care if you're looking for a job. You would be perfect for this job." And I said, "I don't know. I just." He goes, "Well, screw it. Let's, let's go. Let's go grab dinner." And I go, "The hockey game just started." He goes, "I didn't come here to watch hockey." So we wind up going to have dinner and a few more drinks. And three hours later, he's like, "I'm in." So I called my wife. I said, "I think I'm changing jobs." <laughs> so that was four years ago, and here I sit. That's uh, that's funny. That. The league, how, how much has it changed since, you know, in the coming, since coming on board here in June of 14 or so, I guess is when it was official that, um, you know, has, have you added teams? Have you had to actually whack some teams? Do you, you know, those kinds of things? Well, I'll give you a little history of the league first. I mean, it was it started back in the 70s. We actually have a couple teams that have been around for 40 plus years. So Sioux City just had their 45th anniversary and I think Des Moines had their 40th, but um uh, it originally started as a semi-pro league. So, like, Gordie okay. Howe played for the Omaha Knights in the USHL a long time ago, back in the 40s. And then it became uh, primarily a junior league in 1979. Uh, it was actually, the USHL was officially started as a junior league in the back room of the Minnesota North Stars offices in Minnesota. Hmm. With Walter, you know, former USA president, uh, USA hockey president, Walter Bush and a few other guys. And uh, uh, in 1979, they went, you know, 100% junior, and in 2002, USA Hockey anointed that as the only Tier 1 league, meaning the highest level of junior hockey here in the United States. So when I came into the league, there were 16 teams in the national development team uh, that's uh, USA Hockey um, uh, subsidiary, if you will, but that makes our 17th team. And we remain at that because I've been really reluctant to really grow until we're really ready. And I think that we're really kind of ready for that next step because we've identified the three things that really make a difference in whether you succeed in this league as a business or mm -hmm. you don't. The number one thing is the right market. The number two thing is a arena arrangement where you either own it or your lease allows you to succeed. And the third is a group that will run it like a business, not like a hobby. And uh, mm -hmm. we've got some real exciting things on the table for uh, you know, uh, some, some markets here in the uh, upper Midwest. And I think that ultimately our goal is to have, you know, approximately 20 teams, but really to make sure that we're not diluting the talent in the league. And mm -hmm. so, um, what we've seen over the last couple of years with the emergence of, uh, the numbers of draft picks we're getting into the NHL and the notoriety we're getting in media and stuff like that is we're starting to see a huge peak in interest from foreign countries. So hmm. we have uh, the number one rated Finnish player in the world last year came to the USHL. The number one Russian player came to the USHL. We have outstanding Canadian players here in the USHL. So we had 14 different nations represented in the league, 35 different states. And uh, I think that, you know, there's a lot of excitement. What you're seeing is 
the United States Hockey League having the same amount of draft picks or more on a per team basis than any junior league in the world right now. So, oh, wow. So uh, I, I point to things like for the hockey fans who follow it, you know, the Pittsburgh Penguins have won uh, the Stanley Cup two years in a row, and they've won it two years in a row with more college players than at any time in the history of the National Hockey League. And college players are coming from NCAA-compliant junior leagues, and we're obviously at the top of that food chain. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, the, you know, the, the team that's drafted more players than any other uh, NHL team out of this league is the Chicago Blackhawks. And uh, if you talk to Mark Kelly, he's quoted on this in some TV things that we've done. He goes, they just like the timeline. You know, 18-year-olds are not going to play in the National Hockey League, and likely 19- and 20-year-olds aren't either. And they just like to put people into the Blackhawks lineup when they're ready to play. So you take, for example, some of these young guys out of our league, like uh, you know, Vinny Hinnestrosa, Schmaltz, um, Scott Darling, who played in our league yeah. before, and then uh, the, a new kid that uh, just came out of Yale University, John Hayden. And his first game in the Blackhawks uniform, he skated on the first line with Jonathan Tate and had a goal. <laughs> I was just chirping. That's a pretty good first. Yeah, he, he played at Yale with my son. I was chirping him via text because I want to try to get him out to a meal here in the West Loop before the preseason gets too busy. But uh, he's just living the dream. I'm the Blackhawks are his favorite team. And, you know, he goes from you know, getting his degree and being the captain at Yale to skating for the Chicago Blackhawks. But, again, it's all about the pathway. And uh, the theme that we had, we did some events here around the NHL draft when it was hosted here in Chicago about a month ago. And the theme of our events was called the path, and you know we really believed that the path is changing to professional hockey. Where, you know, it wasn't that long ago where the primary path of the National Hockey League was through Canadian Junior, and they would sign you and send you back to Junior, and you were getting paid as a pro but playing Junior, or paid as a pro and sent to minor pro like the AHL or ECHL or whatever. And now I think what you're seeing is more and more teams with the collective bargaining agreement realizing that under the salary cap, the last thing you want to do is be paying guys that aren't ready to make your team. Yeah. So instead, why not uh, uh, you know, draft a kid like Vinny Hinnestroza and have him work and train at Notre Dame for three years or four years on their dime, and when he's ready to play for the Blackhawks, come when you're ready. And he, by the way, has a degree in his hand. So we think this path is way more sustainable long-term because more and more players are going to look at it going, wait a sec. I can get to the National Hockey League and get a college degree? I mean, yeah. how good is that? So right. we really like it. And do you, like the, you mentioned the AHL or ECHL as the pro leagues, like the Wolves here in Chicago, for example, they're not competition per se because that's the kids are kids. I keep saying that, but the players are a little bit older. Um, but you, And the other end of the spectrum is you don't have deals or affiliations with those teams either, right? They're just kind of separate, filling the gap between... Yeah, and I, I, you know, if we compete, it's very, very uh, minor in terms of, you know, competing for a percentage of the sports marketing dollar from sponsors or fans, but, you know, I I tip my cap to these guys. You know, they're a professional team in a market that is dominated by the Blackhawks, and yet they do really well out in Rosemont. Right. And they've got a heck of a team, and they're fun to watch. So, it's really good hockey, and, you know, with a market this size, I think there's room for... for all three leagues, and I actually think there's room ultimately for an NCAA team in Northwestern should they choose to do it. I, there's a lot more hockey fans here than people think, and you know, not well, everyone. There's a huge amount of Illinois oh, yeah. kids that are going on. That's been. The, I'm a U of I guy, and the you were. I think you were there when they announced yep. that. Yep. 
that study into putting a team at Illinois and, and elsewhere. I think that's going to happen, by I the hope way. It, I hope it does. Yeah. Because, I mean, you do. You see these kids that are, and they, these are kids, the younger kids that are looking for somewhere to play college or right. maybe the junior hockey and off to college, and then they can't stay in Illinois. Right. Uh, it's very interesting. And so I hope I hope it is. I hope there's another place that they could play. And, yeah, and, maybe and that's the way we would team. market our teams, too. We can beat too. the crap out of Northwestern. But, <laughs> but, but like, come right. out and see the Chicago Steel or the Bloomington Thunder because, mm-hmm. by and large, most of the kids on that those teams in our league are going to be either playing for Illinois or Notre Dame or Michigan or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. college teams. It's funny, like, you know, we do the lineup sheets and hand them out to the fans that come into our arena in, um, in Geneva. They're the Fox Valley Arena where the steel plays. And people are like, wow, this hockey, if they haven't seen it before, they're like, these guys are really good. And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, first of all, they're not only really going Division One. Many of them have already been drafted. So it's kind of funny. They're like, wait a second. So... They're not pros. They've already been drafted by NHL teams, and they're here. Why? Because they want to maintain their amateur eligibility. So you have, you know, guys like uh, Ben Mirages, who's a defenseman for San or, uh, uh, for Chicago, is already a draft pick from San Jose, but he's playing in Chicago. So, you know, it's not everybody can afford to go to a, a Chicago Blackhawks game. But if you're a hockey fan, you can go for a family of four for twenty twenty five bucks to the steal and see virtually every single kid's going to play D1, and many of them are going to play pro, if not in the NHL. So it's really high-quality hockey. I mean, uh, and if you go, you're going to see guys like Mark Kelly, who's the director of amateur scouting for the Blackhawks, and his staff. I mean, they, they generally send at least two or three guys to every single game we have. We had the um, Fall Classic uh, event, and uh, our Top Prospects game, and uh, the, the Hawks sent six staffers to the Top Prospects game for the USHL, virtually every senior member of their scouting staff so it's a very serious league for people who want to see good hockey as the commissioner too then you've got to try to help fund the league and things like that so there's we talked about ticket sales Mm -hmm. it's not going to be a high price ticket but there are ticket sales and there are sponsorships and there you know those kinds of things that help mitigate the all the costs you've got with travel and things like that is that a big focus of your job is helping to go and try to sign league-wide or yeah you know so deals you know when i first took the job you know i obviously they looked at my background and thought that i could maybe be a part of the uh the solution in terms of trying to elevate uh revenues for the league and revenues for the league versus the teams the teams own all the inventory in their buildings they own all the assets within their community for sponsorship we don't touch that stuff so Really, if you look at the traditional model for professional sports, you have broadcast. We don't. You have uh, you know sponsorships for athletes. We don't because they're amateurs. So we have to really get clever about how we raise money. So what we've done over the last couple of years is really try to raise the bar on uh, creating events and intellectual properties. So on the events and the things, you have this NHL Top Prospects game that we partner with the National Hockey League that uh, is a showcase of our 40 top players and you know we've got a television component to it now Uh, our fall classic which is going to be held in conjunction with the pittsburgh penguins is our partner not only will have all 17 ushl organizations but 32 of the top youth organizations in the u.s so obviously uh you know we're uh pleased with the fact that we've generated you know six figures worth of revenue on sponsorship for an event like that which didn't exist before right and then we have events for example um, uh, just last weekend we had our phase three player combine where the top 2003 birth years yeah that makes us all sound a little old 2003 birth years who are looking for a way to get drafted uh their draft year is in two years so it's kind of our first look at them so all of our teams come in and kind of 
trying to figure out who's going to be on their radar. You'd be amazed at some of the size of these guys when they walk right. by. It's like, wait, you're 14? Right. So anyway, uh, it's a great event, and it's really become a, a major showcase here nationally. We had um, you know people from all over the country, all over actually the continent. We had people flying in from Japan and Germany and Sweden and things oh, wow. like that, some of these top players. So it's it's become a, 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 an event um a piece of invent inventory all by itself. And then on the intellectual property uh, front, last year we launched a program called the Little USHL, and it's really a part of a uh, adjunct of our relationship with the National Hockey League and then uh, USA Hockey and a Learn to Play initiative where we invested in uh, Learn to Play equipment, head-to-toe equipment that we basically you know, sell at cost to our teams who then turn around and give it for free to uh, children under eight who want to learn how to play hockey. So what they do is a program. It's about six weeks, you know, six consecutive Saturdays where, you know, these uh, groups of eight and unders will come in, get their gear, and go through just basics on skating and basics on things. And, you know, the the thing is what they've shown is um, if you get these young people hooked on the game and it's an easy game to like, uh, their retention rate at the NHL level with the, you know, the, like the little hawks and the little wild and the little penguins is like 65%. Hmm. So 65% of these families are actually registering their kids to play the next year and paying. So a retention rate like that is exactly how you grow the game. Yeah. So the NHL sees a lot of merit in taking this model, which I actually helped to develop when I was a CCM, ironically. So I basically kind of took our <laughs> little wild and little kings little Bruins program that I have to develop and just kind of change the logos and put it into the little USHL. But uh, we really think that we can help them in markets like Des Moines. I mean, Des Moines has 600,000 people in the market. That's, yeah. you know, it's it's not New York, but 600,000, if we can get 1% of those kids playing hockey, that actually makes a difference. Same thing in Omaha, same thing in, uh, you know, Fargo, whatever, whatever market, Green Bay. So if, if we want to be a part of growing the game and it's part of our investment back in, in, the, in the community as far as trying to grow the game. And how else, when you talk about the community because you're not a big money-making machine and and your players are basically you know going to class during the week and things like that do you do you do other give back kind of things in the community to Absolutely. attach yourself yeah, there, both, at, both at the team and the league level so at the team level uh, our league mandates community service for all of our student athletes so like for example when my son was playing in Cedar Rapids he was mandated to sign up for certain programs whether it was uh, visiting the elderly or uh, uh, going to read at you know uh, elementary schools or uh, doing car washes for you know cancer research you know fundraising and stuff like that and they, they literally put them out in the community and just get them part of the community it's a it's a good marketing tool to get the athletes known because you know these guys are turning over every year so you got to get their faces in the community anyway right yeah what so the lifetime in the league is generally year to two yeah like uh, then the kids are moving on to college probably, yeah right? okay. yeah so and then on the league level or actually on the team level there's some really interesting things that some of our teams do and I would urge your listeners to uh, go on YouTube and look these things up so they have the wiener dog races in Sioux Falls where they people come with dachshunds and actually have to go through um, qualifying to, to, to get into the finals which are played before 10,000 people at our arena in Sioux Falls and they raise literally tens of thousands of dollars for charities it's awesome and then in Green Bay look up uh, go to YouTube and go to the Green Bay Gamblers Teddy Bear Toss they have 9,000 people and you're mandated to come with a brand new still wrapped you know brand new with the tag on uh, stuffed animal 
and basically what they do is they raise money for you know children's hospitals and animal shelters all throughout Wisconsin. It's absolutely the coolest thing you've ever seen uh-huh. because literally it's uh, the you're, they're uh, instructed to throw the teddy bears on the ice when the gamblers score their first goal. And when it happens and you're there and you see this wall of stuffed animals going over the glass, it's awesome. So stuff like that, it, you know, kind of, it's a little corny, but it's really effective at the community level. And the fact that, you know, an organization like the Gamblers has been doing it for nine years and has raised, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars for local charities through it. I mean, that's awesome. For sure. And then you're involved too with a couple different organizations. Yeah. I've noticed the... Um, skaters keep achieving through education? What's what's that about? You've been involved with that, it says, for 17 years. Yeah, well, it all started I, when uh, I had my own two children in youth hockey, and um, there was uh, a couple of mothers in our association who, you know, like me, put a high degree of uh, importance on academics. And I really feel that academics is something that ultimately is going to pay off a lot more than athletics even for my kids. So it's like, guys, you know, there there's, has to be a symbiotic relationship between the two. And if you have kids that are eager to, to, to participate in athletics using the academic hook, you know, to say, hey, listen, you can play hockey, but you have to maintain this grade point average. So the program basically was for our association um, in, in a suburb of uh, Minneapolis. And I asked their permission to create a brand and take it statewide. And we went from one association with 300 uh, kids participating to over 60 associations and almost 14,000. And it's it's an academic achievement and recognition thing that basically rewards young players for performing off the ice and in the classroom. And I'll tell you what, it's hard when you're working in, as a volunteer to get people to donate things for youth sports. Mm-hmm. When you go out and try to get them to donate to youth academics, people come out of the woodwork. Mm-hmm. And like, I had a, several presidents of youth associations come up to me and said, this is the best thing they've ever done. So uh, I ultimately uh, really hope to try to take this nationally, perhaps as a component of the USHL, I'm not sure. But I've seen it work, and I, I, I know it's a motivating thing for uh, for young players and their and their families and you know we're always looking for ways to trick our kids to do well in school yeah, and this well, has but, been an effective I mean, way it really is right that you've seen it with your kids and yeah. with so many others that you dangle that carrot out there that you yeah. have to get these grades to stay eligible or whatever it, it does it works I you see kids that play sports are far typically far more successful higher GPAs in in school than kids that aren't. Well, so. I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, this is one thing that uh, we're really proud of here in the United States Hockey League and hockey in general. But um, the graduation rate for NCAA hockey is the highest of any male sport, huh. which blew my mind. Yeah. It's like, if you, it's right, it's published reports from the NCAA. So you'd think, you know, sports like tennis or golf or you've got affluent, smart kids. And it's like, no, no, it's, it's not just about affluence. It's about attention to detail and work ethic and time management. And I, you know, of course I'm biased, but I believe a little bit of it has to do with the fact that they're not going into college as 17 or 18 year old freshmen. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I I love telling this story is I have a a friend of mine who, uh, he will go unnamed, but people know who he is. He's a head coach at Penn State University, used to be at Princeton. And when he was at Princeton and I was on the board of directors of the uh, uh, high school elite league in Minnesota, he used to, you know, come with all division one coaches and scout it pretty heavily. And he was, uh, had a scout book in his hand and he had them color coded pages. So he had a red dot 
a yellow dot and a green dot on the pages. And I was kind of looking over his shoulder, kind of eavesdropping. And I was like, hey, what are the red dots and yellow dots and green dots? He kind of looked around. He didn't want anybody to know because <laughs> it's kind of corny. He goes, well, I work at Princeton. And uh, it's not real easy to get student athletes qualified to get in to our university. I said, I get it. He goes, so the red dots are guys I can't even think about. There's no way I'm getting them into our, our, our admissions. And uh, he kind of thumbed through the pages, and there's a lot of red dots. And the yellow dots were the guys where it was like, proceed with caution, because I don't know if I can get them in the admissions, but they're really good hockey players. I'm certainly going to try. And the green dots, which were really hard to come by on the scout book, were um, guys he knew, you know, ACTs, SATs, and GPAs. These are candidates for Princeton University. And he goes, let me tell you. I was at Princeton, and the academic folks came to us and said, we're, you know, we don't really know what this whole junior hockey is thing, and you know, we're, we're one of the top academic institutions for Ivy League. We really think that uh, maybe we should be just looking toward the prep schools for our student-athletes. And the coach said, well, are you aware of the fact that the hockey players have the highest GPAs on our campus right now of any student-athletes? Mm-hmm. And then the people are like, no. And he goes, look it up. So sure enough, they look it up, and they're like, how does this happen? He goes, it's real simple. These young men come into our campus as 20-year-old freshmen, and they get it. They've already had kind of gotten their crazies out because they're away from mom and dad already for two years, and they come here, and they're ready to work. And uh, I love telling that story because I've seen it with my own kids. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, an, and it's amazing thing to see the maturity level of these guys coming out of our league. They get onto their campus, and they're automatic leaders. It's awesome. You know, anything else that, anything that I haven't touched on already that you want to talk about, what's going on with the USHL, or what, anything else you've got going on? Well, you know, I, I think one of the things is I, you know, get more familiar with uh, the painless and everything, and I know that you guys are kind of mentoring um, you know, young folks in terms of uh, their emergence into the business world. And um, I definitely want to talk to you a little bit more about some opportunities here. I think we're going to be opening up and, and crafting a couple of customized sports marketing internships that I'll give you more information on here very shortly. But I think just, you know, one of the things I wanted to share with some of your listeners is they, you know, is try to take time out and mentor um, young people. I always, I get a ton of calls from young people. I can't meet with all of them, but I really try to uh, to give them a little bit of time because I was there too, making those cold calls. And uh, it's, a, it's a scary, you know, thing to do to pick up the phone and try to get somebody on the phone and engage in the conversation. So, you know, I get emails from folks saying, hey, if you had a couple of minutes, I'd love to talk to you. And I always try to reach out and, and, and engage these folks. It's it's not an easy world to, to get known and everything. And I, But I try to tell these folks, these guys, understand the business you're getting into and you have to figure out what kind of value you bring. What is your value add to a company? And in most cases, what I tell people is if you can sell, if you can somehow become a part of the revenue equation, you become a lot more valuable. So try to think about that. And then I harp a little bit on the whole communication skills is if you can't read, write, or speak, you got your work cut out for you getting a decent job, in my opinion. I mean, it just it's something where you really have to excel at being able to communicate and articulate thought, articulate ideas. So, so what I try to share with these these youngsters, these whippersnappers, yeah, these exactly, days. exactly. <laughs> we'll have some more information Absolutely. on these internships that we'll get out to the to the group. So keep an eye out for that info. Anything else? 
No, I appreciate the the time. Uh, we're going to try to do some big things. I think uh, again, a, a lot of your uh, listeners are probably sports fans. I would just ask them to maybe kind of you know clue into uh, our league a little bit. Uh, www.ushl.com, and we've got some pretty interesting um, social media things going. We got over forty thousand Facebook followers and over twenty five thousand Twitter followers, over twenty thousand uh, Instagram things, and we generate a lot of content and kind of tell the story of our league and our student athletes and. For the folks out there who really, uh, you know, buy into the pathway of student athleticism, uh, you know, maybe uh, knowing a little bit more about the USHL might bring something new to their life. So, absolutely. Well, thanks so much for being a uh, guest today on the Painless Podcast, Bob Fallon. Bob has let me know they're still working on the sports marketing internships, and we will have them in next week's, the August 16th, Painless networking e-blast so make sure you check painless.network for that before you go reminder all you spike ballers get 50 percent off team entry into the spike ball nationals coming to chicago's cricket hill october 14th use our code painless get to usaspikeball.com today get your spot use the code painless and get in for half price all right thanks for listening 24 awesome guests already in the feed to check out if you're new around here Everybody from Chicago Wolves President Mike Gordon to Positive Coaching Alliance's Jason Sachs to Chicago Sports Commission's Executive Director Kara Bachman and many, many more. Subscribe, review, and rate too. Really appreciate it. And don't miss any future Painless podcasts or the new hoop-centric show, The Fade Away, coming tomorrow, August 10th. Until next time, it's Chris Hartwig saying, stay connected, friends. Stay connected, friends.